I, I, I went years without speaking to him. And then I guess I had his phone number saved. He had mine. And he texts me like a year ago, completely at random, just like, what's your favorite Kanye album? And I was like, oh, all right. Like, hey. Um, <laughs> then, then, full disclosure, yeah, I'm pretty that, sure I was I was with him when that happened. We were talking about like best. Was there a time where he texted you like your favorite um, Outcast album? Yes. Yeah, actually, I think that was the first one. I think he texted me. Oh, that's so funny that you were there for that. We were because we were we were debating best Outcast albums. Um, and we were going back between, I think he was saying uh, Stankonia and I was saying uh, um, one of the earlier ones, either Aliens or Equemini. Yeah. yeah, I think it was Equemini. And then somehow your name popped up when we were both like, I bet David Cohan would agree with me. And we were both saying that to each other. And I was like, That's why don't you so text funny. him and see what his, <laughs> what his favorite is? And it was it's that, Stankonia, like, right? That like made my week. That was during like a really bad week, and I was like, "This is the funniest thing." <laughs> and like uh, that, was, that was actually like that was a good pick me up. And I was also like very prepared to answer that question. And sorry yeah. to say, I, I did. I am Team Stankonia, although <laughs> although you really honestly can't go wrong with any of their albums. So uh, yeah. so I'm not going to say you were not correct. <laughs> what What's the answer for best Kanye album? Oh God! I mean, you know, the, that that question is a whole new tone now than it did like six months ago. He, we definitely didn't line up on that because I was like, "Oh, Jesus, for sure," and he's like, "What?" <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I've always been a, I've always been a huge fan of that one. Um, uh, I, I liked, you know, I mean, everybody goes dark, twisted fantasy, but I like where he like kind of. I feel like Jesus was yeah. him like taking a brick and throwing it through the stained glass window kind of thing, and that that yeah. sort of appealed to me more at the time. It's still, it's now I'm kind of sitting and seeing like, you know, I mean, he was one of my favorite artists for a long time, but I'm also Jewish. Yeah. So obviously it's a bit of a, bit of a quandary. Yeah. So like, I'm kind of waiting to see where he's going to land in like, in like my personal views <laughs> in a couple of years, but you know, the album still slap. <laughs> yeah. It's tough listening to his music. Um, yeah. Like, fuck. Like his, I mean, essentially the run <laughs> from, from college dropout to like Pablo is like one yeah. of the best runs any musicians ever made um but then yeah, you hear him totally. speak and you're like deal. this guy is like yeah you're like this guy is a total nutcase but yeah like his music is great in part because he's such a nutcase and like he's not saying like anything offensive in the music but is that like enough of a reason to yeah to still listen to it it's <laughs> It's tough. If he, like, if he finally, because he supposedly he was going to name one of his albums Hitler. So if he ever drops the Hitler album, I think that's probably when the die gets fully cast. It's like, yeah, but it would like, for me, it would be funny. If it's like, I hate to say it, but Hitler kind of slaps. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh no. That, yeah. That would be awful. It took me a while yeah. to like, like get back to not skipping one of his songs. If they came on shuffle, like yeah. it just like, it still like feels kind of icky. Not kind of icky. It feels super icky when one of his songs pops up. Um, yeah, but like it's still. I feel like it's so tied to this like like kind of the same time period where like we were hanging out and stuff. This sort of like late high school like you're starting to really form like your adult tastes in art kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, so it's so like you can't really like I don't know, I, I I don't feel like I ever fully be able to get rid of it. You know, it's just sort of like yeah shifting how I view it. But uh, but I yeah no, I mean there's some songs I'm never gonna be able to skip, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, dude, I was just thinking when we were like 
going back and like favorite Kanye album, favorite Outkast album. I feel like this is just we're like right back in Minchin's classroom. <laughs> um, oh just, yeah, like um, bullshitting about <laughs> about favorite pieces of of art and like yeah, man. Like I feel like I feel like a lot of my movie taste currently ties back to conversations that like we were having like we were sort of like coming into our formative i guess like formative tastes at the same time together and i feel like we would bounce yeah. you were someone who i would bounce like a lot of like just like understandings of things that i liked and didn't like like off of ladies and gentlemen screenagers all across the wasteland welcome back into the canon the only movie podcast providing you with the most essentials movie watch list uh today i'm very happy we have a very special guest uh an old friend of mine uh someone who has totally informed my taste as a film watcher we go way back we used to chat about movies together in our high school ap gov class and uh and now we're here david cohan welcome to the canon thanks for being on brother how are we doing how's la it's cool. It's uh, I, I mean the the now nowadays things are kind of spicy here in the uh in the entertainment industry, obviously. But um, yeah. But like overall, I like it. You know, I've been here. It's gonna be ten years in January, and uh, I never Damn. really thought I was gonna be here that long, and it still kind of trips me out sometimes. But uh, yeah. But uh, but it, it's a pretty good time. Like I, I think, you know, I think if you're not you know if you're not from here, haven't spent a lot of time here, people think it's like really fake or like really manufactured. Mm-hmm. But um. There is, I feel like, a really vibrant local culture here that a lot of people don't know about. And, um, mm-hmm. and like, once you spend a lot of time in it, especially if you, you know, like, I'm a transplant, but I try not to approach things as, like, a clueless yeah. transplant. So, uh, yeah. so like, if you kind of open yourself up to that, there's a lot of cool stuff here. But it is a lot of driving and traffic. That part's true. Yeah. <laughs> where, where in L.A. do you live? Uh, I live uh, just outside Culver City, technically in Palms, but, like, kind of right above Culver City. So it's on the west side. Okay. Probably about like, like ten kind minutes of north? east of Santa Monica. Okay. Cool. Kind of like center, like center west, but not all the way west. It's kind of like if, if like this okay. is downtown, like Santa Monica is like Santa Monica's here. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Is that a cool? So area? yeah, like like fifteen minute drive to the beach. I'd say like Culver is it it, it doesn't it, it's it's a really old neighborhood, so it's got some cool mm-hmm. stuff like that, but it's also like a bunch of streaming studios have moved here recently and it's like really sucking any of the energy out of it fast. It's like yeah. gentrifying super quick. Yeah. Um, so like, there's a lot of like, you know, like, like, you know, like expensive high rise apartments now and well, mm-hmm. high rise by LA standards, probably like six floors, but, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and, and, you know, a lot of like Silicon Valley types who like had come down to Santa Monica and now are kind of moving eastward from there. Yeah. So like it, it has a lot of neighborhood. I mean, a lot of um, it has a bit of personality, but like I'm worried it's kind of getting stifled out because like Amazon just bought this huge studio, you know, mm-hmm. near us, and then um, obviously I work at Sony, which has been here a little longer because um, Sony just works out of the old MGM studios, so that's been here mm-hmm. a really long time. But uh, but kind of like Apple, HBO, all this other stuff is moved yeah. in, and it's kind of starting to get pretty techy over here. But uh, it's but I good. like it. It's 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 close to a lot of stuff, and uh. And I, I, it's close to where I work, so like I'm the only guy who yeah. doesn't have to wait like 30 minutes in traffic at least to go to my job. So that's nice. Do you still have to drive. Uh, to work. 
like could like you to work walk? or uh, yeah, like to work. I could walk. It's like it's like a mile and change. So like a lot of times I'll walk home, but usually in the morning if I'm like rushing to work, I don't. Uh, I'll yeah. drive still. But uh, but I've been working from home a lot. We're still actually kind of hybrid at Sony, which is nice. Yeah. So uh, nice. so I try. I actually I'm one of the few people that's like. I actually feel like I do do better work in the office. So like sometimes mm-hmm. I try to get over there, but I'm also like obviously a huge advocate for, for hybrid working. I think, you know, like yeah. it appeals to so many people and helps us get a lot more people. So I would never, yeah. I would never be one of those, like we have to go back to the office kind of guys. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. I do want to table the, the Sony discussion, but we'll come back sure. to that. Have you been in this neighborhood in Culver, like the whole time that you've been in LA or have you like moved around? I moved around a little bit. Let me think. I started in Burbank, which is like, have you ever been out here? Yeah, I've I've been out a few times. It's been a while. I will be, yeah. I, I think I'll most likely be there in October. But yeah, I, I haven't been there in a few agree. years. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I, I lived in Burbank, which is which is a very odd place. Like, I, I feel like, in a good way, I think. It's like, mm-hmm. it's sort of like, in some ways, it reminded me of Nuro in that it's this like older suburban town. But it's yeah. also like th- there's so many, um, you know, it's right near Warner Brothers Studios and there's so many like weird little like cinematic oddities over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite thing about living in Burbank was I lived the block, you know, speaking of Reservoir Dogs, I lived a block away from the Safari Inn, which showed up a bunch in Reservoir Dogs. That's where I think that's where Mr. White was staying. So it had this big like surfboard logo and stuff. Okay. Um, and And it was literally like feet away from my apartment. So I thought that was really funny. And it was, yeah, it was kind of an offbeat place. And I lived there for like a year. And then I moved over to Mid-City, which is like sort of similar area to Culver, but even more east. It's like it's like 15 yeah. minutes down that way. And That's then, where like, um, all the agencies moved... are and stuff, right? Yeah, or... just below. Like, I was just below that. Yeah. Okay. It, uh, Yeah, it's like kind of like, that's like the Wilshire or, area. Or is that, so that's I'm like right. Century City where the. It's both. Yeah. I mean, Century okay. City has that, has agencies too. Century City also has like the Nakatomi Plaza Tower from Die Hard and like Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's sorta it's it's sorta empty over there, except for these like actual big buildings that have agencies in it. But uh yeah. but they got a decent mall. I go to the movie theater over there sometimes. Nice. Um, um but yeah, so I lived in Mid City for a while and then I moved over to the apartment I'm currently in in twenty seventeen. I've been here ever since. Nice, man. Um yeah. did you meet your fiance out there or did you guys go to school together? No, I met her out here. Uh, I met her. It feels ancient to say this at this point, but I met her on OkCupid. Um, oh, so nice. In like, so she was going to USC out here, and I, mm-hmm. you know, she was like a, uh, she was a junior at the time, and I was just freshly graduated, mm-hmm. and uh, and like at that point, like really living the like unemployed, you know, sending out job interviews, but like basically just couch surfing yeah. and smoking weed all day kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and so when she met me, I was a yeah. <laughs> uh so when you met me i was in a totally different headspace but uh but yeah no we uh we'd be hit it off really well and uh and i'm stuck together ever since but uh she uh she actually she actually works with me too when everybody thinks we met at work but uh but i had met her i'd met her before that and then she started working yeah uh, i guess slightly in nepotism higher but uh but yeah I was the one who hired her so i don't i don't think that it's they, they were putting out they they put out like an open call for jobs. I was like, she'd be good yeah. at this. And so I yeah. sent it her way, and like I never thought she'd be there as long as I was. And now, now we've been coworkers for a long That's time sweet. too. Has yeah. Sony been? Has that been your only job out there, or have you? Did you bounce yeah, out at all which, before that? 
I mean, I did a couple odd, you know, I helped out on like a couple student films and things like that. And uh, mm-hmm. for a little while with this company that did like actor reels for people trying to get into SAG. But like that was all fairly, you know, part time work. But uh, Sony mm-hmm. is the only full time job I've ever had at a couple different places at Sony, but uh, but but all kind of under the umbrella. Sweet. And so, so do you and your fiance, do you guys work in like the same department division? Do you guys like actually work together we- or just like? both work at Sony. We, we work in the same, we both work at Sony pictures image work. So it's the same, uh, it's the same area. Mm-hmm. And now we actually do the same thing, but usually on different shows. They, uh, the cool thing about Sony is there's no company policy against dating a coworker as long mm-hmm. as it's not like a higher up situation, you know? Yeah. So, um, so like everybody knows that we're, I mean, well now, now she's my fiance, but even when we were first yeah. starting to date, everybody knew, you know, we were together and stuff. So they're usually pretty good about not putting us, you know, right on the same show where I have to like bug her for like, yeah, like shot updates or something like that. So, uh, so, uh, we, we work in the same area, but not, we, we've never worked together on the same project. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So now I have to, I have to ask, (laughs) I've, I've been meaning to ask you this for like for years, but so like, what is it exactly that you do at Sony? Uh, like what is oh, yeah. your, you know, like what's your role? Like what's your job? <laughs> so I, I've been, uh, for the most part, I've worked at Sony pictures image works, which is like mm-hmm. their, um, their CG animation and VFX company. Okay. And it's cool. Cause they do a lot of projects for Sony, but they also will get contracted by other studios to work too, because they're like kind of one of the premier companies for that. So mm-hmm. I work under the Sony banner, but I've gotten to work on a lot of different movies. And my job title is basically just production coordinator. So like what I do is if you imagine, you know, if you're, if you're working on a movie and uh, you know, let's say we're working on like a fully animated film, you try to imagine it like kind of a, uh, like a car on an assembly line. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, there's different departments that kind of do, you know, different things to get a shot from, you know, from on paper to complete. So, uh, so like, the assets department will will uh, you know they'll they'll kind of model all the uh, characters, props, and environments. Layout will then kind of put them in a scene and do the uh, you know the camera work. Animation will mm-hmm. get everything moving. You know all the way down to like uh, lighting. You know it lights everything. And uh, basically each of those departments has a different group of artists that are specialized in different ways. And then the the production coordinators are sort of the people on the production side who. Um, who kind of oversee it. So I don't do any artwork myself or anything like that, but basically what I do mm-hmm. is I'll be put in one of these departments and, uh, and just have to oversee, you know, we have a certain amount of shots we have to finish in a week or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we, we may have to do, you know, a certain, a certain thing on a shot and we'll need help from another department. So I'll reach out to them and kind of thing. Yeah. And I also just kind of make sure the artists are okay and are, have what yeah. they need. And if they, if they do any overtime that it's all like approved and not, you know, not off board and they get food and all that stuff. And, uh, and nice. lots of note taking. That's that's probably yeah. the number one thing. Just good constant <laughs> note taking. <laughs> so, so uh, is it, sorry. Go go ahead. Oh yeah, go on. Uh, oh, I was just gonna ask. Uh, is it? Damn it! Uh, sorry. You go. Keep going, please. Uh, so I, I was just gonna say that. Yeah. So like right now, I'm working on a. I actually, when we were talking this whole time, I hadn't had any work, um, you mm-hmm. know, I was kind of in between projects and, uh, things are a little slow at the moment with the strikes and everything like that, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Although what we do doesn't 
you know, like right now I'm not crossing a picket line or anything, which I'm mm-hmm. very glad about. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, I've just started to pick up work on a, um, on a live action VFX project that's delivering in like a month. So it's, it's really insane to jump on that late in the game. But, uh, but, uh, but that's kind of what I've been doing is like, is like kind of helping to oversee things over there as they kind of bring it to the end. Okay. So that actually answers the question that I was going to ask. I, I was wondering if you did, if you just did production work for, for animated projects, or if you did like live action VFX as well. And I I've done a bit is, of both. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've done a bit of both. I, I would say I certainly like the the full CG stuff better. It's, yeah. it's just, it's a little, it's usually a little bit more orderly. The timeline's usually a bit longer. And mm-hmm. you don't have to deal as much with things like, oh, by the way, uh, here's like 50 reshoots that we've done. And uh, this entire shot has completely changed since the final <laughs> bit. It's, yeah. You know, it's, it's a lot less hectic usually. The exception mm-hmm. being something like Spider Verse, where we're like, you mm-hmm. know, breaking everything over and over again to get the shot to look right. But, but like, yeah, usually I prefer the CG work. I happen to have been picking up a lot of VFX work recently, just because there hasn't been a ton of CG work at the moment. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping, so, oh yeah, I'll hope by around like January or so to get back on a CG project. So when you, I feel like I, I've seen you tweet about this, mm-hmm. but can you break down like the difference between what you what you mean by cg work and like what you mean by live action like vfx work because i feel like oh yeah for like film fans like a lot of us even though we you know want to pretend to be informed we don't fully know what we're talking about when we you know mention things like cg or or vfx so what is like like how would you break those two things down oh sure so cg work basically it refers to like anything where like everything you see in a shot, you know, is, was computer generated, you know? So uh, obviously, you know, like for full animated movies, something like your spider verse, there's not going to be mm-hmm. any like, well, um, oh, I guess actually spider verse, there was a little bit of live action in this new one with, with uh, yeah. Donald Glover. Sorry, spoilers, but, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but like by and large, like, like full CG means like everything you're seeing on screen was, was generated and animated, you know, through computers. Whereas uh, live action VFX is sort of a catch-all term for like, you know, you'll you'll shoot something, you know, let's say like I worked on, you know, Ant-Man not too long ago. So like, you, you know, mm-hmm. you'll obviously you'll shoot Paul Rudd on camera and stuff like that, but he'll be in front yeah. of the blue screen and then you'll put a bunch of, you know, exploding crap behind him. Yeah. And uh, so that's kind of that's kind of more if I refer to like a VFX project, that's kind of more what I'm talking about. It's a lot. It can get a lot more complicated than that. I'm, that but I'm that's doing, like, like the basic really yeah. Big oversimplification. But yeah. I still think that that oversimplification is like something that online film discourse still somehow misses. Um, so I feel like it is important yeah. to, uh, to to clear it up. Is there are there situations in like a live action or like an otherwise live action film where there are shots that are completely computer generated? Oh, yeah. All the time. Like um, the end of Avengers Endgame. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. I didn't, I, I would imagine most of that was done, you know, or a lot of that was done, you know, like full CG. I'd mm-hmm. say like in my experience, definitely, you know, especially if it's like there aren't really people in the shot and there's just like a giant spaceship like shooting at a bunch of, you know, like crowds and stuff like that or something. Yeah. Um, that's that's usually going to be all CG. Um, they We try to use, you know, like, uh, you know, what's called plates. You know, plates are the term for the, uh, the like, the live action shots that we bring in, you know, and put stuff on top of. 
So we mm-hmm. try to use plates whenever we can, but sometimes it's just not feasible if uh, if the lighting's off or if a character is kind of moving in a way where it would look really weird. Sometimes it's better to use a uh, like you know like a full CG version instead. Although that can come back to bite you, as as is also seen in the discourse where somebody will yeah. po- post something and be like, "None of this looks real," you know, and like that sort of yeah, it, it's kind of a delicate balance. <laughs> yeah. Damn. So, all right, you mentioned Spider Verse and you mentioned Ant Man. You, I know you've worked on a ton of other projects. Is there one that was like your favorite thing to work on? Like the most fun, the most fulfilling? You know, I mean, I, I got to say Spider-Verse, uh, obviously, especially the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it just, it felt very, we, we knew as we were making it that we were really doing some different shit. You know, like yeah. I, uh, I remember getting shown the concept art for it, like right around when I started at Sony, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of years before it actually got made. I was going like, if you guys can actually do this, this would be crazy. But like, there's no yeah. way it's going to look like this on screen. And then it did. Then that was, yeah. I mean, it, it's still, especially because I'm not an artist. A lot of this really does still feel like magic. It's like, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll manage an artist team and I'll say like, hey, we need, uh, you know, in Spider-Verse, I was in the effects department. So like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, explosions, glitching, uh, you know, like, like all the, all the, you know, like particulate type stuff was what we were mm-hmm. working on. So like to see someone be like, yeah, I'm going to do like the collider explosion and then come back with a fully realized shot of the collider exploding was still yeah, like yeah. crazy for me to witness. And then That's obviously like, like really all the reception for it and the people, you know, like the first Spider-Verse didn't do that well in theaters, but like seeing mm-hmm. it get the kind of like cult reputation it did. And especially really like seeing a lot of the kids being like, I see myself as Spider-Man and I never did before. Yeah. It was like, such an insanely gratifying thing to me and the oscar was cool too you know like, I'm not gonna... <laughs> like you're you're part of that. like you're part of that you're fully 100 percent like part of the reason why that movie won an oscar yeah which is pretty People amazing me if i got a statue and i was like oh god no but uh but they let us hold it <laughs> <laughs> that i mean that's pretty rad so i think this might yeah, be a no, first they're, they're cool about that this is probably a first for the canon i think you're our first oscar winner to uh to appear on the show which is pretty good oh, news. Well, yeah. hopefully, hopefully many more after me, <laughs> especially ones who could maybe like pull the trophy off their shelf or something. <laughs> also, Spider Verse is in the canon, so you know. Oh, whenever, really? whenever, yeah, whenever that episode comes around, we'll we'll bring you back on, and we we will uh, oh, we'll have a more in depth conversation about it. Um, yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. That's sick. Yeah, man, that's really sweet. I remember watching it with my roommates and. I like knew uh, from you like posting about it and stuff that you had worked on the movie. And like, after we watched it, I was like, guys, we got to like check out the credits. Like my buddy from high school worked on this movie and seeing your name in the credits is like, it felt like I had won an Oscar <laughs> in a way. Oh, dude, even that's though, awesome. I love that. Even though I didn't help you in any way, shape or form. Oh. Hey, you know what? We, we can take it all back to Mitchens class. And like, you know, I mean, I feel like so much of that time period, like, solidified my interest in film, you know, and, like, mm-hmm. really, you know, that was when I started applying for colleges, and, um, or I guess I'd kind of been into applying colleges by 17, but, uh, but like, yeah, that's when I was really, like, I want to go to a school with a good film department so that I can really kind of pursue this. That's sort of where all that kind of glued together. So, you know, it's all interconnected, for sure. I, I do remember you uh like senior year saying like i'm gonna go to i'm gonna go study film and then i'm gonna become a filmmaker and i was like yeah same and now you are actually doing that and i just talk about movies hey but that's still good you know we're both doing it in some way (laughs) but i 
I did also want to ask if um like your work at at Sony if I'm sure like I'm sure at some point you were thinking like big time director you know the mm-hmm. sort of like dream that every aspiring filmmaker has but like have you found the work that you're doing now to be like do you feel like you're in a good place within the industry are you like doing work that you enjoy is there another move for you or like like where where does where do you stand on all that stuff so i'm definitely happy with this corner of the industry for a lot of reasons you know i figured out pretty quickly after i moved out here i think at the end of college i really got into post-production i really wanted to be an editor or something like that Mm -hmm. um and i still really like that work um it's funny how a lot of filmmakers are divided where some people just like love spending hours in the editing lab and other people are like, if I look at, you know, five versions of a different shot, I'm going to fucking kill myself. (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) but, uh, but I've always like really liked that aspect of it. And, um, I thought that was what I wanted to do, but I sort of figured out really quickly that I loved being creative and never wanted my paycheck to depend on that. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, so I was, I started really thinking about, you know, like what kind of work can I do that will put me near all of this awesome creativity, but at the same time, like, it's not me putting my art up there for a bunch of directors to be like, well, this sucks. And like, change this. And da, 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 you yeah. Know? Um, yeah. So, and, and it was that coupled with just like, at that point I was interviewing for any job that came up and, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, just figure like, whatever, you know, I'll get my foot in the door and then figure it out. You know, so I, I definitely in like 2014, when I was applying for jobs like this one, my thought wasn't necessarily like, oh, I'm going to get in at Imageworks and I'm just only going to do animation for the rest of my life. But uh, yeah, but uh, it sort of happened that way. And I was excited just because like, you know, now that I think about it, like, of course there are. But at the time I was like, I didn't know you could work in this industry if you weren't an artist, you know, like I didn't yeah. know, you know, like I was one of those kids who would like watch like Shrek on DVD, but then watch all the special features and like, and like see how they storyboarded everything and be like, that's yeah. so cool. Like, you know, so yeah. actually getting to be around that and even getting to meet a couple of the guys who were in that was, uh, was insane. That's awesome. Man. You know? It's, yeah. So I mean, kind of, I fell into it by accident, but, uh, but I do really like mm-hmm. it. I'd like to, you know, I, I obviously want to keep moving up. I'd love to be like an assistant manager, you know, like mm-hmm. a project manager at some point and, you know, just get, just get kind of, you know, move up the ladder there. But I'm, I'm hoping not to move, especially because, uh, you know, I think if studios allow it, there is kind of like a creative boom happening in animation right now. And it's sort of this push and pull between all this, like, really exciting new stuff happening and studios being like, yeah, we're not funding animation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, didn't the Spider-Verse sequel make, like, a zillion dollars? It did. I assume. It's at- and it's like, that's helped blown the door open a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, it's cool to see, you know, we were wondering if we were going to see stuff that kind of looks like Spider-Verse after mm-hmm. it, but it, it's actually been kind of neat to see, you know, the, like the uh, most recent, like, Puss in Boots movies got kind of that style, and then this Teenage Mutant yeah. Ninja Turtles movie that's in theaters also kind yeah. of definitely, uh, you know, harkens back to it a little bit. It's kind of cool to see this sort of explosion of stuff that looks like that. I hope it's going to inspire, you know, as much as I love Spider-Verse, I'd love to see mm-hmm. some, like, non-huge ip animated stuff get really popular yeah um and it's you know it's happening in bits and bursts but uh but that's also that's a concern for the industry overall you know (laughs) yeah damn i feel like we could chat about the state of animation for for hours um oh sure but we'll yeah (laughs) i guess we (laughs) we could we could also try to move on 
to uh to the movie we're supposed to be talking about but that was all Mm -hmm. super awesome and uh it was very fun catching up so today we're talking about stanley kubrick's classic dr strange love i'm not going to say the whole name because i'll probably trip over some part of it um but when we were talking about you coming on the show and like a potential movie to talk about um i was trying to think of movies i think the classic or the easy answer for for us based on like our past relationship and movies that we've talked about would have been reservoir dogs but strange love feels like it's sort of in this in a similar vein uh you you hadn't seen it before like no this, i right? i hadn't. <laughs> I was I was pretty embarrassed to admit that to you. I actually like you you, you texted me and you you sent me you know you sent me a couple different I won't say what the other ones were but you sent me a couple of a uh, couple of different movies and uh, you know two of them that I'd seen and were very familiar with and then this one which I'd been meaning to watch for years. Yeah. I mean I remember even even in high school I think I don't know if you called this your favorite movie but it was at least like really high up there in high school and I remember being yeah. seventeen and being like. Oh yeah, I'm totally gonna get on that, and then you text me. <laughs> <laughs> so it took some time, um, but we finally we finally got there. Yeah, yeah, no, and like I, I I I even briefly was like, should I tell by if I gonna lose like all credibility in your eyes? I'm like, I am 31, and I haven't seen like one of the classics of American cinema. <laughs> I but, I, uh, I try not to be one of those like movie guys who's like. Or like one of those people who's like, you, you consider yourself a movie person and you've never seen Casablanca? Like, you know, there there are thousands of movies and you know, you get to the you get to the ones you get to, and if you haven't seen a, something that's considered a classic, it's it's fine because I know that you've seen a bunch of other great movies. Yeah, uh, totally. I feel like that's something both of us probably must get a lot, is like, oh you're yeah. a film guy, but you haven't seen this. It's it drives yeah. me freaking crazy. I'm sure you too. You've never <laughs> you've never seen The Godfather? Like <laughs> I, I yeah, have that one I managed to get to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, man, Doctor Strangelove. I think so you just recently watched it. I saw this for the first time at age like seventeen, and I was totally blown away. This was sort of in the same similar vein as something like Reservoir Dogs or, or like a bunch of other movies that Reservoir Dogs is like the one example, but I'm sure there are so many other movies that we would talk about, um, you know, when we were in our late teens. But this was like one of those movies that I watched at that period of time and was like, oh, like people can do amazing things it, with movies like people can make insane pieces of art that you know even if it's 50 years old you're still going to connect with like you're i remember watching it and like like remembering like oh like someone chose different camera angles and like camera shots to use and then someone else chose to edit them together in a specific way it was like one of those movies that made me aware of like the process of filmmaking which i feel like is pretty cool i don't know how you felt or if you caught any of that watching it for the first time as a 31 year old who has been working in the film industry for (laughs) 10, 10 plus years. Um, But I am curious, just like your general thoughts on strange love after your first viewing. Uh, I I did somewhat. I mean, first of all, like, I feel like that time when we're like 16, 17, 
I feel like for so many, you know, people who like who either watch a lot of movies or work in it or or discuss it a lot, like that's kind of that's kind of the time where it starts to settle in, you know, like the concept of like movies as text, you know, the idea that there's these, yeah. you know, this, this large pantheon of films from different times that can hit you in different ways. But actually watching as a 31 year old, I was kind of glad I didn't watch it at 17 because I was, I was kind of a jerk at 17. I feel like I wouldn't have necessarily had the, not that this movie requires a huge attention span, but I think some of what makes it so great would have been lost on me at that age. I would have just been like, Earl, just yeah. sitting at a table talking, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> I think definitely as a 31 year old with a bit more of a concept of, a, like the existential dread of the fact that we're all sitting on large nuclear warheads and B, <laughs> you know, just, just a better concept of satire. I really got a lot more out of this. Although I yeah. appreciate you humoring me on this. I realized there was this huge risk of me watching it and just being like, yeah, it was the biggest piece of dog shit. And then like, <laughs> we wouldn't really have a podcast <laughs> after that. <laughs> that would have been, but, uh, that would have been tough, but yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's a hard movie to, to not like, I guess, you know, some people, not everyone will, will, will jive with it or, or jive with it. I recently found out that you jive with something with a B, not, it's not jive with a V. Um, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I still like want to refuse to believe that, but apparently, apparently that, that is, that is so. That's like a Bernstein Bears thing. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that That's it's crazy. not. I didn't know that. What's the Berenstein Bears thing? Oh, you never heard? It, it's like, I forget how it's spelled, but it's like, however, like the Berenstein Bears is spelled. I think it's like, it's like with an A-I-N at the end and everyone's like, no, it was with an E-I-N and like collective memory says it was spelled one way, but it was actually spelled oh. another way. I, um, and like, yeah, I've heard, I've heard that kind of compared to a lot of things where like, like, you know, people think it's one thing, but it's another. I don't like that either. I don't like yeah, it one day. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I was I was confident in recommending uh, us talking about Doctor Strangelove because I feel like I I felt like I know your sensibilities enough to know like that this would be a movie that you would that you would totally be like oh yeah that's that's rad I I feel like it would I was confident that this would be something that would that would click for you so I'm happy that it did work out that way there there are so many things that we can talk about in this movie um and so many things that we should talk about i kind of don't know i'm like overwhelmed in terms of where we should start i don't know if there's anything that stuck out to you that you want to mention sort of off the bat and we can like take it from there i guess i would say what really a couple, I mean, obviously, like, tons of stuff really, really stuck with me about watching this for the first time. But I'd say, like, a huge one for me was that um, I, I've seen a bunch of Kubrick, obviously. You know, I mean, I'm sure any of us in this position have. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it felt very much of his, you know, like, like of his essence. But at the same time, felt so different from any of the other Kubrick movies I've watched. Yeah. It's... Like, it you know like like the fact that it's it's like a political satire and that it's you know it, it's a little less you know like there isn't a ton of moving camera or like you know uh you know like i feel like it, like this movie is much more based in the dialogue than around uh around the visuals although the visuals are important too and you know like it was it was it was really it moved at a different clip than any other kubrick movie i've seen 
Yeah, it's a lot faster than most other Kubrick movies. Like a lot of other Kubrick movies yeah. like require a shit ton of patience. And this one just sort of throws you in and it's like, hey, we're off to the races and all this stuff is happening and all these characters are here and a bunch of shit's hitting the fan. Yeah, well, like right at, right at the start. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is like, I, I, I don't know. Some people might argue differently, but I feel like this is sort of like the first movie where Kubrick, you know, like you can start looking at Kubrick as like an auteur, you know, and I, it's easy to see why. I mean, it's such a, I, you know, sorry to the Lolita fans out there, but also like maybe go talk to a therapist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but like, but like here, I think it really is like such a step forward. And, and then he basically carries that momentum from there through the entire rest of his career. You know, it feels yeah. like such a, uh, you know, such a, like, like a ground shaking event, you know, kind of. Yeah. For him. The run is definitely strange love ties wide shut. The other movies are, are all yeah. there and some of them are great. Others are pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. it, like really didn't make a bad movie. Um, but this yeah. is definitely the one where it's like, Oh, that's what this guy can do. <laughs> yeah, um, totally. Like, Oh, he's the best director of all time. That's mm-hmm. my opinion. I'm I'm a super basic film bro. I think Stanley Kubrick is the greatest director to ever live, and Doctor Strangelove is one of the best examples of that, in my humble opinion. But yeah, what else stood out to you? I mean, just just like how sharp the commentary was. You know, I mean, Kubrick. I feel like there's in a lot of his films. There's you know, there's definitely references to political issues. You know, some mm-hmm. of them are borderline satirical, but this is like to my knowledge, like really the only like outright like political satire that he's done. And yeah. it was funny watching this and thinking like he could have taken this and and made a whole career out of this. You know, he could have been like, yeah, I don't know, I guess like a, like a, you know, like the Larry Charles of his day or something like that. You know, just like a guy who like kind of only does these like, yeah, black, you know, like political black comedies and, and it would have probably worked out great for him, but uh, you know, he's Kubrick. So he's, he's going to follow this up with 2001 instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely insane. Did it, do you think watching this in any way, like recontextualize the rest of his career and the rest of his movies? Like, do you feel like you got sort of a different look into Kubrick and like what he was doing with his filmography or not so much? Somewhat, you know, I mean, it kind of helps to see how they're all in conversation with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this movie was obviously made, you know, coming out of obviously, you know, the panic of like World War II and, you know, I mean, the the Cuban Missile Crisis had just happened like a year before this and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, Kennedy had just been assassinated. A lot of stuff's happening, obviously, in the early 60s. And it was kind of see, you know, interesting to see how we went from this to, you know, without going into it, because I'm sure there's gonna be another episode, you know, you know, like fully dedicated to it or something, but like into 2001, which I think, you know, is kind of more about unease of, uh, you know, the space race and, uh, you know, like kind of increases in technology. And, you know, you take that, you know, you move on a little later and it's like full metal jackets, obviously like a very overt commentary on the war, you know, and it's kind of like all this stuff is sort of happening at the same time in a way that was really interesting to see. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I, I don't think I, you know, I mean, I gave, that's some thought, but definitely a lot more after seeing this and being like, Oh, this is like, this is sort of, this is sort of where the explosion happened. Pun intended. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Great pun. Um, yeah, I feel like to me, Kubrick's career 
even from like paths of glory through Mm -hmm. the end it's sort of all about like people in power and how dopey they can be and how we like hold them up in such high regard like you think you know president of the united states uh the joint chiefs of staff you know all these all these people they're they got to be so smart and and uh you know they they must have their shit together because they hold such positions of power and really kubrick's like sometimes they're kind of like idiots and it affects the rest of us in awful ways and strange love is like the most obvious example of that because it affects all of us in uh the worst way possible because th- the world ends <laughs> yeah totally i i totally agree and like actually like one thing i loved about this movie was like it's really smart and biting political satire but at the same time it also appeals to the person in me who will laugh for five minutes at the name president birkin muffley <laughs> <laughs> so like it really kind of has something for everybody on that front it's like it's so it's so sharp and so you know relevant yeah. and like so much of it rings true but it's also like so silly <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> i do have in my notes just so many great names this is uh, yeah i just i was listing names in my notes yeah. <laughs> Uh, Lionel Mandrake is an underrated funny name. Yeah. No, him, uh, my favorite was actually, uh, was Colonel Bat Guano, the guy who, uh, the guy who comes <laughs> into Mandrake at the end and, you know, just yeah. like that shit. This is basically yeah. his name. <laughs> his line of, maybe we can get into this too, because there are so many great, just like comedic mm-hmm. one-liners, but his line of, okay, well, you're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> it- <laughs> that was... That was one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. I, I love that because it's like uh, on the front, it's such a stupid joke, but uh, but it also like it really does mean something. You know, it, it, it's clearly it's like, you know, no matter who we answer to, we all answer to like these corporate overlords and uh, yeah. <laughs> using something as like a great American company as Coca-Cola, which, you know, today you can make that same joke and it would pretty much yeah. still land. <laughs> like, OK, before we make any decisions about the war, we should see how the Coca-Cola company feels about all of this. exactly yeah yeah you know if we drop a nuclear bomb that might affect their stock prices um (laughs) but yeah it's like it so many of the funny lines are are they're just they're so quick and sharp but then you know like you're breaking it down right now like if you take a couple of seconds a couple steps back to think about the layers to it it's just like absolutely insane the the go-to great line of uh you can't fight in here. This is the war room is mm-hmm. absolutely incredible. One of the funniest lines of all time in some of the research that I was doing for this episode. And I feel like I had heard this before, um, but my memory was jogged. Uh, apparently when Reagan was elected and was getting his like first tour of the white house, he was like, so when are you guys going to show me the war room? And whoever was showing him around was like, dude, that doesn't exist. That was literally That's just made so up funny. for Dr. Strange love. <laughs> I never knew that. That's crazy. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. But like, I mean, I'm sure when I first watched this, I probably thought that there was a war room. I'm sure for like several years until I heard that joke about Reagan, I was like, yeah, you know, Bush and all of those guys, they're sitting around in the war room making decisions about, you know, who and where to, where to drop some bombs. Yeah, totally. I kept thinking of, uh, 
you know that famous picture of like of of uh, when Obama was president and they did the the raid on the Bin Laden compound. There's that picture yeah. of like all the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the table, like kind of watching like this. And, like that was kind of the closest analog I could think of. Although even that, I think, was just like a conference room. Yeah, <laughs> you would no you would board. think you would, <laughs> but sir, he could see the big board. That was my other favorite running gag in the movie was was how obsessed Buck Turner <laughs> was with with the big board and like that point where he like. He like, I, I, you know, it's kind of skipping ahead, but like where he like trips and falls and then like gets up and he's like, no, 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 but look at the big board. It's like, that yeah. was like incredible physical comedy. <laughs> An- another great piece of trivia. That take was, was not planned. Like it wasn't in the script for him to, to trip and fall. George C. Scott oh. actually just fell during the take and kept going. And he really, I guess he really didn't want Kubrick to use it. And Kubrick just thought that that was the best take. So it made it into the movie. That's so um, funny. I mean, Kubrick was yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. The way that he like, <laughs> that he stays with it and points up, look at the big board. The obsession with yeah. the big board is, is amazing. What other great lines are, are there? Oh, he, his other great line of, uh, you know, the, the potential fallout where he's, he's estimating how many lives would be lost. We estimate that we don't oh, yeah. lose <laughs> 10 to 20 million. Yeah, I wrote it somewhere, but uh, but yeah, no, that actually, it, it was it was crazy because I, I watched this movie twice. I watched it mm-hmm. like two or three weeks ago when we first talked about doing this, yeah. and I watched it again this morning. Dedication. And, uh, oh yeah, no, well, also very very good rewatch movie. I feel like yeah. like I, I I think the first time I was really like studying it, and this time I was just like laughing and watching it. Yeah, and, you know, it was it was kind of good to do it twice. But uh, the first time I watched it was like two days after seeing Oppenheimer. And like, I won't really dig into that one since that's, about, yeah. you know, that's a whole other thing. But uh, it felt, it felt, did you see Oppenheimer? I'm seeing it tomorrow. Oh God. Okay. Well, there's a line in Oppenheimer that you're going to know immediately. That's going to make you think of, of that line about the you know civilian casualties. You're going to know exactly what it is when you see it. Okay. I can't, I <laughs> can't that's, wait. That's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, dude. I f- I don't know if Oppenheimer is one of your recommendations, but I saw something online where someone said that this movie is the midway point between Barbie and Oppenheimer, and I can see it. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. That's hilarious. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I saw Barbie again it, uh, last night, and there, I don't. It's obviously not intentional. Like the movie is just top of mind because I just saw it. But there, there are definitely some. There's some validity to that that point <laughs> yeah i'd say so i did like the full barbenheimer the day of and like yeah definitely um yeah. and uh yeah oppenheimer is not one of my recommendations but i do recommend it <laughs> that makes, like yeah. it's definitely like i feel like you're gonna get a lot out of it having just talked about this going into that you know there's definitely yeah. like a you know like a solid conversation there yeah i love that um i'm very very pumped let's see i'm trying to think if there are any more great lines that i wrote down this isn't a this wasn't a line of dialogue, but another great joke was uh outside of the base where Ripper was holed up is the on the uh on the sign it says peace is our mission or peace is our yeah. profession. Yeah. <laughs> As like you have the the troops outside shoot, shooting at the building. Yeah, exactly. I loved uh Ripper saying he was quoting I forget the name of the guy he was quoting, but um when he said war is too important to be left to the generals. And mm-hmm. how like so much of what Ripper was doing was obviously completely wrong, but that one line's actually like is proven super correct in this film. 
Yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, I don't think that war is like should be left in the hands of politicians. But he, uh, yeah, that original quote was right. Is that when he mentions that uh, that quote? Is that when Kubrick is doing that like insane low angle shot of him with the cigar in his mouth? Because that is one of the best shots in the history of movies. It was definitely around there. I feel like that might have been a two shot with Mandrake, but uh, but it was yeah. in that same was in that same sequence. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, but yeah, no, that is a great shot. And uh, like, I don't even think the cigar is lit in his mouth. I was watching it, and I was like, "Is there even smoke coming out of?" It? <laughs> it's just, yeah, you know, it's just, it's just there, there to be there to be a prop. I think my my favorite sort of. My favorite shot, my favorite piece of editing, my favorite just like piece of filmmaking in this movie, which always stands out to me every time I rewatch it, is one of those early shots, one of those early sequences of uh, Mandrake and and Ripper when they're on the phone. And when it's cutting in between the two of them, every shot of Mandrake is the, it's the same angle, same shot, like same camera setup. And then whenever it cuts back to Ripper, it's just like catching him from all different angles. And it's like, Oh, this dude is like literally manic and all over the place. While this other guy, Mandrake is just like totally stable. Everything is the same. He's super calm. It's very standard. Um, yeah. And also like his name is Jack D Ripper. So obviously yeah, he's just right there on the, <laughs> yeah, he's kind of a freaking psycho. Um, yeah, but it's just that's like, a good catch. I, I don't think I realized that, but yeah, that's uh that's, that's great. Yeah. I think it's just because I've seen this movie so many times and I'm sure there are like so many other examples of, of great like pieces of, of filmmaking and stuff. But to me, that's just like the best example of, of Kubrick um, using all of the tools of, of cinema to, to tell a story. What did you think of like the, the cinematography as a whole in this flip? It's interesting. Cause it's like, it's, it's the only Kubrick movie I've seen besides like, probably Spartacus, which I saw a really long time ago, so I can't mm-hmm. quite speak on the techniques in that one. But uh but like it's the only Kubrick movie I've seen where the camera doesn't move so much. Um mm-hmm. which was which was really interesting. You know, it's like so not what I'm used to when I watch a Kubrick movie. And you know, obviously yeah. some of that is just technological limitations and things like that. But um but it was it was really cool to me to see that he could still have this really unique point of view and this really you know, great visual style without doing the things that I would typically associate with the look of a Kubrick movie, like, you know, Clockwork Orange or The Shining or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so yeah, I mean, it was mostly, I think other than the plane crash, I think it's all just kind of still camera, but uh, but, yeah, yeah, the the use, you know, the way, um, you know, the way he would cut between two things like that, or, you know, the way he would stage camera angles and especially the lighting on characters like, on characters like Dr. Strangelove and things like that, I think really did a whole lot of legwork here in a way that I thought yeah. was really cool. W- was that another intended pun with Dr. Strangelove and legwork? No, but it should have been. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, too many great puns. Um, yeah, that's that's a great shout. I, I I've never really thought about it that way in terms of like how the movie is is shot compared to some of his other movies. But I think what you what you mentioned before of that like it's kind of cool that this movie is is super like still in in the 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 way that the camera is set up because 
so much of the action is dictated by like the movement of the dialogue and like the movement of the characters and and all that stuff and and the plotting along where it's like if you just had that in like if you had like still cameras i guess you kind of do in 2001 or something like that or like uh or like full metal jacket like the movie would just like feel like it's taking forever whereas yeah here you know it, it's not a, as necessary um but yeah that's super interesting no exactly i don't know if i want to go here yet because i feel like it's a it's a big thing that we can talk a lot about um you know what let's Fair do enough. it uh right. the, so, let's do it the opening sequence a lot of the movie there's a lot of like imagery of like sexuality and phallic symbols and mm-hmm. you know obviously slim pickens riding the bomb at the end he's just on a big old dingling that's the second time maybe third time on this podcast that i've said the phrase big old dingling uh you should try to sneak one- it in every episode <laughs> I, I listened to your boogie nights episode in preparation for this and so that was definitely one of them <laughs> that's that's the one that's the one i can think of uh uh that, that's amazing um, I'm working on a soundboard too for the show, so maybe big old dingling will be something that I put on the soundboard. And every time I want to mention a big old dingling in a movie, I'll just pop it on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> but any anywho, wh- like, what did you make of all the uh, the giant penises and uh, the other sort of you know sexual jokes that are that are littered throughout? the movie and uh like what sort of commentary kubrick's doing there i mean i i I love that Uh, honestly it's really funny that you mentioned barbie related to this because it's like i i i thought that like it it really i mean i i don't know i feel like sometimes it's kind of lazy to just be like oh that movie was ahead of its time but it really did kind of feel ahead of the curve in sort of Mm -hmm. calling out how like you know, like these like toxic masculine environments where it's just these dudes like, you know, like preening at each other can create something, you know, so destructive. Yeah. And, you know, it was sort of an indictment on that. And like certainly commentary like that existed before 1964, but it is it is really interesting to see that in, in such a major political film, you know, mm-hmm. in a way, you know, in a way that I'm sure it had been done prior, but I certainly hadn't seen it done earlier than that, you know, and it, yeah, it's I mean, it's a, it's an indictment on the whole thing, you know, everything from uh from the you know the major King Kong character to just Buck Turgidson's name. I look, you know, I looked up uh, <laughs> Turgid means like swollen, and uh, you know, is, is often a phrase used uh, to, to you know attached to big old dinglings. So like like his entire character is just that, and obviously the way we meet him with the uh you know with like the scantily clad secretary and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just so funny how it goes from that. All the way to the end where they're talking about the mineshaft uh, community with the, oh with the 10 God. women for every man, which is which is like maybe my favorite part of the whole thing is when they're just like, yeah, well, we can just, we can just go yeah. live the mines. Just be, yeah. And then and then Turgisson's like, oh, yeah, well, we're going to have to do away with traditional monogamy down there, aren't we? You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it's peppered through the whole movie. And it's so it, it's so like obvious but at the same time so subtle that it's not just like literally you know like like literally slapping dicks in your face yeah (laughs) it's really it's so it's so well done it's such a clear message you know yeah but done so well i yeah i don't know if it was i mean i'm sure it was like to your point i'm sure it was done before but probably not to the same level that it's done here where you finally realize like oh 
all of like war and especially the cold war is just one big dick measuring contest. Like exactly. You know, like no one wants to actually, you know, use these bombs um, because we saw how awful they can be, but you know, we still want to be the, you know, the coolest guy in the room. So we got to pretend that we have, big old dinglings by continuing to, to build more bombs and build more bombs than, than the other guy. And just like all just wrapped up in like the worst kind of stupidity because, uh, because Jack D Ripper thinks that commies are, you know, putting something in the, in the drinking water that will turn everyone into a communist, which like is both insane. Well, it's insane because like one, how would they do that? And two, like, okay like then you have people that who have, actually like, different beliefs yeah no that that shook me because like fluoridization uh fluoridization of water is like still a, a huge like pet conspiracy theory for for folks like that or like even you know uh you know like that clip of alex jones going like they're putting stuff in the water to make the frogs gay it's like that's still like a thing that like yeah would kind of do is, is, like talking about the fluoride in the water and how it's going to kill all our kids so we like bomb the frogs yeah, exactly. But like, I didn't know how how much history that conspiracy had. So when I heard him say it, I was kind of blown away. I was like, "Wow!" I I, I thought, I yeah, thought it was a much newer thing. Yeah, it's pretty wild. The Cold War was a crazy time, and oh, yeah. I feel like it, it's never fully like in like history classes and stuff. It like never fully hit me how weird the Cold War was. Like, it's it's something that lives in like a weird abstract of my mind and I can't I feel like I can't get a grasp of it and this is like this movie is the closest thing I have to some sort of tangible object that can like explain to me what was happening and why it was so weird but it still also doesn't explain like why everyone was acting so cuckoo it's just like everyone's pretty insane right now and there are all these bombs and that seems like a bad combination right everyone yeah yeah. yeah no we, we there isn't quite a modern analog for it i was trying to think but like what especially blew my mind was this is a year after the cuban missile crisis so like probably right before filming happened on this movie we came as close as we've ever come to nuclear annihilation and like yeah. to not only be able to process that so clearly so soon after but to be able to make fun of it which would i feel like be a tough thing to do now but back then it's like it, this was a little bit before the explosion of like art that was really deeply critical of uh you know mm. of, of the government and of uh war and things like that you know we're still kind of coming off of the tail of of like uh you know world war ii and you know deep american patriotism yeah. and stuff and like honestly like like it, it took you know it, it, it took it took a lot of balls to make this like you know like i imagine he must have had some kind of pushback on it yeah all right we should talk about this a little bit because i i i came across some interesting stuff in my my research about the movie but like that's a great shout that this came a year after the cuban missile crisis and to be able to process all of those like all of those happenings so quickly is like super insane but um apparently kubrick's original intention with this movie was to make like a serious like spy thriller or like a sort of like political thriller drama um, but as he was writing it, he just like couldn't get past some of the absurdity of like 
the way that the characters would were like acting as he was like putting putting them on the on the paper um so he's like this kind of has to be it kind of has to be a comedy like there's no other way to make this movie it has to be satire and apparently when he was like, like this was like in his notes or something when when they were writing the script he says if you get a if you get a call about nuclear warfare and you're in your office it's a thriller if you get it while you're in your living room it's a drama but if you get that call while you're in the bathroom it's it's a comedy um yeah and like <laughs> so what you were saying about uh Turgidson and his name I had always just assumed that it was like supposed to be close to turd and like the Could fact be. that he's at the fact that he's in the bathroom when he gets the call <laughs> um is like where that whole joke <laughs> comes in but yeah it, like do you do you think this movie would play as like just like a regular thriller or drama or do you like do you think that it had to be a comedy i was thinking about that too because i actually only had just read that today about that um part of me thinks oh, i mean first of all he was absolutely right i mean I, I think i think we can all say you know in hindsight like this is the better movie than whatever that would have been mm-hmm. um you know I, I like that his idea was just you know it, it was it was that he was sensing the absurdity and he was also like oh, who's going to want to sit through an hour and a half of, like, like something this serious? It's, it's like, bleak, you know? So there's kind of a yeah. bit of that, too. And that's what made him bring in, like, Terry Southern as the other writer who kind of helped with uh, some of the satirical elements. But uh, I I never want to sell Kubrick short. I feel like whatever he would have made would have probably been good to great, you know? Like, yeah. it's just, he's, he's just better than almost everybody else doing this. But, uh, yeah. but I, I think he was very right to kind of see which way like like which way this would play best and which way people would absorb it best at that point you know um mm-hmm. you, you know i i think i think especially after something so serious you know and like and like the concept of something so serious as you know a nuclear bomb and only about 20 odd years removed from when it was dropped in japan like you know i think this was sort of the way to do it you know i think anything else would, yeah. have, been, would have been really you know a rough watch also considering like the his like the historical period if he made something kind of critical without, but like critical and dramatic, it probably, I think to your point, wouldn't hit the same way or like audiences, audiences wouldn't have been as receptive to something like that. That's like just outright criticizing the American government. Like, I don't think American audiences were, were ready for that kind of like, you know, look inward at, at the country and yeah. and the people who run it. It, it needed to be something that they could laugh at but yeah and i'm thinking like the thing is like even that said it, it's you know even now i'm trying to imagine like like the closest analog we probably have to this is like i, I guess 9-11 as far as like like childhood tragedies and stuff like that i'm trying to yeah. imagine like a, a really like goofy funny biting 9-11 satire that you know obviously we've gotten some since but like like under a year out from it yeah like, like i feel like that i feel like that would have been unheard of yeah I, I know I'm trying to like wrap my head around like uh, a, a satire that's like that's like biting, but like not like too silly that is like looking at Bush era and like to some extent like Obama era, like war on terrorism and how sort of like ridiculous the whole thing is. And I, I, I can't think of a movie or another text that is doing something that relates to like this that period of time the same way that strange love sits in its own period of time like it, it takes a 
genius like Kubrick to to make that work. Yeah, totally. Or at least like we we've gotten some stuff that was a little more literal, like W or something like that. But uh, but nothing nothing quite this abstract. Yeah, no no Jack D Rippers for for our age, unfortunately. Um, No, sadly. (laughs) <laughs> no no Merc and Mufflies. Besides the real life ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, now we just live in a world of, of real life uh Merkins and and Rippers um and Major Kongs. Have, have did you yeah. come across the piece of trivia about how Slim Pickens came into this movie? Yeah, well I read that like Peter Sellers was originally he played three roles. He was originally supposed to play five, I think, you know, because he yeah. was supposed to be Kong. And he was supposed to be Turgidson. And um, <laughs> I think with Turgidson, he was basically turned to Kubrick and was like, come on, bro, I can't, I can't be like three people in this room. <laughs> but with uh, with Kong, I think it sounds like he got pretty close to actually playing him, right? Mm-hmm. Apparently, he didn't want to play him because he, he wasn't confident in his uh, Texan accent. And mm-hmm. there was a mysterious fall or not fall that happened while Sellers and Kubrick were arguing about it and Sellers may or may not have broken or twisted his ankle um which then like limited him in being able to to shoot the scenes in the uh the cockpit but I feel like whatever happened if he actually broke his leg and and couldn't do it or if he faked the injury um I feel like it it was a a great uh it was a great turn for us because Slim Pickens, like you can't imagine anyone else, you know, riding that big old dingling at the end. Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> waving, waving a cowboy hat in the air. It's just too perfect. Yeah. And Slim Pickens is just that guy all the time, as far as I can tell. I mean, I, you know, like thinking about him and like blazing saddles and stuff like that. He's just, it's just kind of yeah. like, if you need that guy, that's who you called. And, um, you know, Peter Sellers is such a genius that like, honestly, mm-hmm. I, I, there is a world where I could, you know, like I'm sure his performance wasn't as bad as he thought it was, you know, yeah. um, I'm glad it turned out this way. I also, I do think like, I get what Kubrick was trying to do. I think he was basically trying to say like, no matter where you looked, you know, like, like Peter Sellers was holding the keys to the world, you know, like yeah. whatever part you were looking at, but I yeah. think he was still able to achieve that effect with three of them. And I think like five would have kind of pushed it in uncanny Valley territory. It's just like everybody's yeah. Peter Sellers. Yeah. <laughs> and we would have missed out on two of like the great performances in this film you know by with uh george c scott and uh slim pickens for sure yeah (laughs) ready to go toe-to-toe war with the ruskies (laughs) (laughs) my other favorite piece of trivia about this movie uh and i think this is my last one the i don't know if you caught it but the line where uh Kong is going through like the little booklet or like the the case of, of things that they have uh with the uh mm-hmm. with the tiny bible and uh book of russian phrases which side note i don't know if you have the criterion collection uh dvd of this but in that box set there's like a little envelope labeled top secret and there's like a top secret um wait give me one sec oh nice it, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty awesome So yeah, there's this little top secret booklet and in it, they have a fake playboy with some essays uh, about the movie. And then another essay as this like top secret document code R and then uh, credits and uh, notes about the, um, 
about the cinematography in this Holy Bible and Russian wow. phrases little booklet. <laughs> That's so cool. I actually like, I, I don't have the criterion, but I was gonna, I always hit up in like July and December when they have like the half off sale. Yeah. And, um, and like, just like four days ago, I was like, oh man, yeah, no, like I'm gonna go hit that sale and like, and, and buy this one. And I realized like, oh shit, I just missed it. So I'll probably be a cheap bastard and hold out till December, but I did yeah. buy it on Amazon at least. So I, I have it, I have it streamable, but like, that's definitely one I'm going to get next time. It's worth it. I, um, yeah, I, I bought the, I bought the DVD not knowing that it had all that stuff. Just be, I was like, it's one of my favorite movies. I should probably own it on physical. And when I finally went to watch it and saw that, I was like, oh, this like totally, even if I like didn't, if I never watched the movie, having that little booklet makes it totally worth it. Yeah, totally. That's a weird tangent from, oh, the other piece of trivia. Uh, so when he's going through all of the the stuff in that in that little case or whatever and he says a fella could have a pretty good weekend in in vegas with all this stuff the original line was dallas and it's dubbed over but the movie was supposed to come out i forgot the date november something of 63 and wow (laughs) jfk gets assassinated in dallas and they're like well one we have to push this movie because we can't do a satire about nuclear war and, you know, including a, a presidential character that's kind of a buffoon, you know, the weekend after our president got assassinated. And we should also change the line about having a pretty good time in, in Dallas, uh, oh my considering God, that's, that's where crazy. he got shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, probably a good move on that part. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't realize they had to push the release date. I was thinking like, even because I think it came out in like January of 64 or like yeah. early 64 for sure. Yeah. And even that I was thinking like, this was close to that assassination to make a movie making fun of the president. Yeah. Um, that... You know, and like, especially during that time of like such high scrutiny on all, you know, like on anything that resembled political commentary, like, like craziness to come out that, that early. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been, would have been a, a totally different story if uh, if the movie stuck to its original release date. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely wild. Do you okay? I have, I have one other thing that I want to ask you about, and then, uh, but I don't know if you have any any other uh, topics or, or items that you wanted to to bring up. Trying, but I'm trying to think, yeah, but uh, but not go on. I'll uh, I'll see if I have <laughs> The music in this is awesome. Kubrick's choices of like soundtrack is always incredible the we'll meet again at the end is super iconic but i wanted to ask what you made of uh apparently the song is called when johnny comes marching home but like that traditional sort of like military marching song that's playing while the uh the the b-52 uh plane is like flying over russia you have this like super traditional like music of uh how we've thought of wars to be fought and like this new age technology of how wars are going to be fought going forward. So like, I don't know what you made of that or the, the song choice at the end. Yeah. I, uh, I, that was another thing that was really interesting to me is this is one of the only Kubrick movies I've seen that doesn't have like this really complex score. I mean, you could, Mm -hmm. you could do full, you know, for almost any other Kubrick movie, you can do a full podcast just on, you know, on like the musical accompaniments. And this one I think is all, you know, I don't think there is any score. I think it's all like licensed, you know, songs. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, um, it, it, it was such a simple but effective way to show that, you know, that area of things happening, you know, like, um, 
uh, j- just the idea. I mean, I think Johnny Goes Marching Home is supposed to be like a fairly positive look of like you know somebody going to glory and coming back, and uh, yeah, you know, like like all the pride that awaits them when it's home. And instead, it's just these like jerks on an airplane who are like <laughs> playboys and playing cards, <laughs> and then this cowboy who. Well, I guess does not come marching home because he rides a big dingling down. Into the- <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was it was a good juxtaposition that like probably even back then hit even harder because I'm sure that type of music was was, yeah. you know, like all over the place, you know, and like and like that kind of like, you know, hyper patriotic look at war, you know, uh, but uh, but it was such it was such a simple and easy way for Kubrick to be like, look at these jerks like they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I love that he did it every time. Like it was just always underscoring that yeah. part of the movie. <laughs> bunch of jackasses looking at playboys yeah. and playing cards. A bunch of jackasses that includes uh, uh, James Earl Jones. Yeah, I, I guess was that like it had to be an early role for him. I guess, but uh, it may have been I, may have I, been his first. Yeah, I was. I, I didn't catch like his name in the credits or anything, so I was fully like yeah. I was fully like the Leo DiCaprio pointing thing when he started talking. Yeah. And I was like, oh my god, I know that guy. <laughs> this week I watched The Sandlot and Doctor Strangelove, and it was a weird James Earl Jones double feature. But oh I dug yeah, it. But you can't go. He's he's so good. I mean, even even yeah. in just these little bits and pieces, like he's he's so he's so singular. Yeah, I feel like we should probably talk about the ending and the sure. title character. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, you you brought it up before the whole like mind shaft scene, which is incredible. Um, yeah. What did you think of Strange Love himself and his like little bit part at the end? He's well. It's funny, like how you know, like time wise, how comparatively like small amounts of the movie he's in for the fact that it's named after him. Yeah. And that he ultimately brings around the ending, but he is kind of the impetus for this whole thing, I suppose, you know, with his technology and his, uh, mm-hmm. his sort of like, you know, like, I don't even care what side I'm on. I'm just, you know, like, uh, you know, like just pushing, pushing like the mad science forward. Yeah. But um, I mean, it, it, it just goes to show how like, you know, cause the other two roles that Sellers plays in this movie are, are fairly, you know, are fairly straight up and down, you know, I mean, obviously mm-hmm. they have their funny moments, but they're, there, you know, I, I wouldn't quite call them larger than life, but here he just kind of goes all out in a way that's so great. And like, you know, like everything was physical movements. I loved, um, I was watching this morning and I saw where he, uh, where he first comes out, he, he like sort of brings his hand up to grab the cigarette only to pass it to his other <laughs> hand right back in his mouth. And like, that was such a fun choice that he clearly did like right on the fly that I feel yeah. like sold so much of the character in like one second. Yeah. And like, obviously like like politically there's definitely a lot to pull from it you know i think certainly you know him being like a nazi doctor i would i would i would assume is a huge comment on uh like operation paperclip and the idea of like uh you know how we in real life took a lot of these like nazi you know like uh aerospace folks and like you know like rocket scientists and brought them over and kind of you know like padded out nasa and things like that with it you know obviously i would say this is a huge indictment against that yeah um there's this is where I would say there is another Oppenheimer connection and I don't want to tell you what it is, but, but let me know if you maybe see a connection having to do with the Dr. Strange love character. Okay. uh, I I had a point about it, but I I really don't want to like pull, you know, if you're going to go see tomorrow, I don't want to like pull you from that, but uh, (laughs) um, maybe keep an eye out for something there. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll definitely uh, text you with notes after I see the movie. 
obviously by the time this episode comes out, it will have been a while after Oppenheimer came out. So like most of our listening audience will have probably seen it by then. Uh, but I do yeah. appreciate you, uh, you holding back for, for my sake. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I'm I'll curious. Be- uh, you know, the, you're kind of like me too, where it's like, you don't like blindly love everything Nolan does. So I'm actually really curious how you're going to feel. Yeah. About this yeah. I have an interesting relationship with Nolan. I'll leave same. it at that. Big same. Yeah. <laughs> Kubrick, not so much. Yeah. This movie, not so much. I have a weird, I have a weird leap that I want to mm-hmm. take with the ending of Strange Love. That is something I haven't. It's a take I'm sort of workshopping right now. And, um, you know, we have a rule at Screen Age Wasteland where we try to not get too political with our with our chatter about movies. But I feel like when you're talking about a movie like Dr. Strangelove, it's kind of hard to ignore the politics of it because it's like literally the entire point of the movie. But yeah. I think at the end, that last line, you know, from Strangelove, my fear I can I can walk or my legs work. I forgot which one it is. Do I think remember? it was like uh, I wrote it, but uh, yeah, I think it's my fear I can walk. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> incredible line read, just just what, on its own, just so good. Absolutely bonkers line read. Um, like if that doesn't just like blow you away from just like a, a ballsiness perspective in terms of directing, like I don't know what what will. Um, but the sort of political leap that I'm that I'm taking is that in a way like the destruction of the world, the uh, what's, what's the bomb called that the Russians make the, uh, the doomsday machine, the doomsday machine, that yeah. the fact that the doomsday machine ends up going off right after strange love stands up and says, my fear I can walk, which is like this, like he's like a Nazi who is literally rising up and then the world ends. And it's like, Oh, like this nuclear race thing is kind of just like the Nazis winning because we're still destroying like everyone else in the world and not existing in like a a, a world of like peace and unity and you know whatever uh the the allies like in theory were fighting for in World War II. I don't know if Kubrick was like necessarily making that point, but it, it was just like something that was sort of spinning around in my head. So I figured I'd workshop the the take here um, and, and get your thoughts on it. Should I, no, should I, I think you're totally right. I, th- I think like I think at the very least, it's it's certainly a comment that like what we're doing here, you know, building up a nuclear arsenal, you know, uh, showing our power, all that is is it's it's fascism in its own way, you know, like it's, it's yeah. You know, like this, this, you know, this idea that like we can just go to any part of the world and erase it completely, you know, is, is yeah. sort of a concept that's being furthered, you know, that was that, that, you know, came about in Nazi Germany. So I, I think like certainly that's that's a very deliberate connection, you know, that uh, yeah. that, that Kubrick makes. And uh, and uh, yeah, no, you know, I mean, I think I think it's probably a comment on white supremacy, too, you know, and the idea of, of uh, master race, you know, leading to just total destruction. You know, it's not it's not the first time Kubrick is tangled with that. Like he, um, you know, you know, I mean, this is this is not far removed from like communist blacklisting and things like that. And uh, also obviously yeah. the civil rights movement was huge at that point. And uh, he kind of took a lot of that on in Spartacus, you know, and, uh, you know, it being kind of a comment about about like rooting out, you know, like like, like slavery and like, you know, like like rooting out, you know, uh, people who try to, uh, 
you know, who tried to dismantle the, the uh, you know, the power structures and things like that. And so I think, I think he's very, you know, I think Kubrick is very much of a mindset that like this sort of mentality yeah. could lead to, to total destruction. And, you know, I think historically he's only been proven right on that one. <laughs> but uh yeah no i i think i think you're yeah. totally you're spot on with that yeah it's um do you think it's a, a happy ending <laughs> it's a weird question to ask <laughs> no but it, it's it's especially with like such jovial music playing and, and even the idea yeah. of we'll meet again is obviously like a really um is obviously like a really you know uh, optimistic sort of message um yeah. i mean no, but also kind of, you know, it's sort of like, <laughs> it's sort of, I mean, I think you can just look at it like Slim Pickens on the bomb. Like it, it's, it's sort of like we're marching to our doom either way. So we might as well do it with a smile on our yeah. face, I suppose. <laughs> so like, like, like overtly no, but in some ways I think he tries to be, you know, like as tongue in cheek and possible about it. <laughs> I mean, the, the subtitle of the movie that I said I wasn't going to, to say out is, or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out who the I was in that. In that yeah. Sentence. So something I read in relation to this movie is that the I is the camera, which is, I guess like the camera is always in place of the audience. So like mm-hmm. at the end you're, and like, it's really weird because with the music and sort of the way that the mushroom clouds are shot, it is almost, it's almost like calming watching them. Mm-hmm. Like after all of this madness of, you know, these silly men fighting in rooms and making awful decisions uh, one after another, there's like this weird bliss of like watching all of these mushroom clouds while the music plays. And it's like, ah, you know, I kind of like this bomb, you know, it, it <laughs> maybe it's not so bad after all. Which yeah. is also like a pretty weird take, but I can I can sort of get behind it. It's yeah, I mean I think I think it's a lot about like ceding the control that you don't have. You know, I think I think certainly a lot of people at that point and now are like very logically concerned about the fact that like all these idiots are sitting on these gigantic warheads and it's sort of like there's nothing any of us can do about it, you know? Like nobody yeah. can go in there and like get rid of it. And so it's sort of this joke of like, oh, I'll just stop worrying and love it, you know, and it's, yeah. it's both it, it, it rings true, but is also obviously like deeply cynical. You know, it's like, yeah. well, fuck, this is this is how it is forever. You know, it in a way, all and like, I don't think that this movie, or I don't think the movie that I'm going to uh, talk about right now is in any way like anywhere close to Doctor Strangelove. But one of the better moments of Don't Look Up is when they're sitting around the dining room table and just sort of accept the fate of like, like they're all going to die. Yeah. And like, I guess in a way you could say that that movie is like trying to pull a lot from strange love unsuccessfully. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I was kind of thinking about like, like we're, I think we're sort of past a like war on terror paranoia in this country. And I think we've now we're entering a phase of like, of like climate anxiety. That is like our new form mm-hmm. of paranoia. And like, maybe we need to stop worrying and like love that bomb. <laughs> um Yeah. So maybe someone can make a good version of "Don't Look Up" that is pulling from from Strange Love in this in the same ways. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, I was trying to think of modern day movies that uh that like really pulled from Strange Love, and I found a couple which we'll get to. But uh, but yeah. like um, 
that was one that actually didn't cross my mind, probably because I kind of repressed that movie to the deep recessions of my brain. But, <laughs> but no, you're right. I mean, that 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 aspect of it, and especially that ending, or like, I mean, I think as clear as day, like you know, pulled from this. Yeah. And uh, and this idea of like, you know, I think there's also something a little bit about the responsibility of this kind of being, you know, especially when you think about like climate anxiety and stuff, where it's like there's this overwhelming feeling of like we ourselves are responsible for the climate crisis and if i get like a plastic straw that's gonna help yeah. with the climate crisis well well no that no point looking at you know larger political spheres larger corporations yeah. things like that that are like dumping shit into the ozone layer constantly yeah. and you know i think there's a bit of that mentality in this movie too of like of like you know it's on you to stop worrying about this because we're fine you know like yeah <laughs> we've, we've got things figured out up here in in, in this war room and you know, on our various military bases and stuff. But uh, if you guys just do those drills where you hide underneath the desk in case the Russians decide to bomb us, then like you'll be cool and everything will yeah, exactly will work itself out. So, all right. To end our conversation on like maybe a bit of a lighter note, I think the the writing on the bomb that says nuclear warhead handle with care is one of the funniest <laughs> jokes in the movie. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I uh, that and then they wrote. I think what did they write? Like hi there, and then dear John on the two actual bombs, yeah. and then the hi there one's the one that goes down. It's yeah. just so like, and you know, I guess they did do that in World War Two. They wrote stuff on like missiles and things like that. But I guess I mean that's yeah. taken to such a dark extreme of like, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> handle with care. So yeah. so silly. Um, yeah, man, this has been a great conversation. Do you have? We kind of touched on maybe dipping into some recommendations, but do you have any, any other notes or, or items that, that you had? I just, I still like, I, I just like, I can't get over that this got made when it did, you know? It, yeah. Uh, I, I was, I was doing some reading recently about, you know, there, I think like three or four years before this movie, there was, there was a comedy album that was made called The Kennedy Family, or I think The First Family or something like that. And all it was was yeah. this guy doing, like, a John F. Kennedy impersonation on record. And it was very, like, dated, hokey, like, late 50s, early 60s mm-hmm. jokes about the president that were not really ripping into him at all. It was just sort of like him doing a funny Kennedy voice and, you know, yeah. like, them, like, going on a picnic or stuff like that. Yeah. And it was a really popular album. It won like album of the year and stuff like that at the time, which is hilarious to think about now. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but even something like so light and just kind of acknowledging the president in a funny way still, I think, drew the eye of like Secret Service and, uh, and you know, people like that who kind of investigated this comedian to make sure he wasn't some kind of like, you know, um, like provocateur of some sort, you know, and it turns out he or was a the guy, you know. Yeah, or that, absolutely. Um, yeah. And to go from that to our dumbass president and his Nazi scientist sidekick are going to destroy yeah. the entire human race while they hide in a mine shaft in the span of, of mere years <laughs> is crazy. I meant to look into, like, if Kubrick ever got any backlash or if, like, there was, you know, like, if, like, the FBI got involved, it would still be, like, the yeah. war era FBI at that point, you know, and I'm, like, I'm wondering if he ever got any crap for it because, like, to think about something so benign a couple of years before getting so much trouble, yeah. you know, to this is like, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about. So, um, it really, like, again, I don't like saying ahead of its time, but like, it really can't be understated how courageous yeah. it is to put something out like this. I think in like a very wide release, you know, I'm pretty sure it was like a major Hollywood release. So yeah. Peter Sellers was a major star at that point, you know, and to do something like that. I mean, even nowadays, it's hard to think of, you know, much, much of an equivalent, you know, totally. So 
you, 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 uh, you reminded me of something. Um, you actually mentioned it before, uh, but slim pickings in, in blazing saddles. So this mm-hmm. episode is dropping. Uh, we're doing a special two for one to kick off season two of the canon. So the two episodes that are dropping, we got two satires. We got Dr. Strangelove and blazing saddles. Oddly oh, enough, that's awesome. Uh, big, big Wednesday for slim pickings. Uh, so good, yeah. <laughs> good for, good for him. But one of the things that we talked about in blazing in our blazing saddles episode is with that movie, people really love saying the phrase, this couldn't get made today. And we try to, mm-hmm. we, we try to make a, a conscious effort to, to avoid saying that, but I'm going to say it for Dr. Strangelove. And the reason I'm going to say it for Dr. Strangelove is why this movie couldn't get made today is, and this is sort of similar to, to the question that you were raising, but there was like, I think the, uh, like the U S Navy and just like the armed forces in general, sort of, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? They sort of just like fully like rejected this movie. They did no consulting whatsoever. When it came out, they were like, none of this could actually happen. Uh, like there's no need to worry. And I was just thinking about like, if someone like set out to make a movie like this today, where the department of justice, like is so heavily involved in consulting like so many movies that get made where they're invoked in like the smallest way. I think for that reason, like strange love could never be made today. So I do wonder if there was, if there were, if to your point, like was the FBI, like knocking on Kubrick's door, like, Hey man, what the hell are you doing? Like, you can't make this movie. It seems like it didn't happen because he got a lot of, like NASA consultants on 2001. So maybe they saw it and they were like, this Kubrick guy is just too good. <laughs> or they watched it like that. Dr. Strangelove guy is dope. Like, yeah. <laughs> is he real? Can <laughs> <laughs> we meet him? Um, no, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, certainly like if it could be made now, it would be much more of a firebrand for controversy. Like it would be, it would be, it would dominate the news cycle. It would be like, you know, one of those, like I would be like kind of the reverse sound of freedom be like, see this, if you care about, you know, society or whatever. And it's like, Oh, yeah. well, if you, if you hate it, then like, you know, uh, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, actually one thing you said did make me think of one more thing, which is the opening crawl of the movie, you know, where they put the kind of like, yeah. like basically they try to cover their ass and be like, you know, yeah. the, the Navy, the air force, you know, you know, will fight hard to prevent this from ever happening. And that felt so deliberate, both in the sense of them protecting themselves, but also like, I feel like you read that and there's no way you can think anything besides like, this is bullshit. Like they have no control over, you know, like, like you read yeah. they're like, we'll do everything we can to prevent this. And I'm like, the entire point of this movie is that they cannot do anything. Is that they can't. Yeah. If Jack <laughs> D Ripper goes rogue, he's going rogue and it's going to be a problem for everyone. Like, yeah. There's... So I thought that was such a great opening. It's like, yeah. It's like, yeah, here's this, but actually <laughs> it's just, yeah, it just adds to the comedy too good. This movie is too good. This is, mm-hmm. I know you mentioned it before. This is this is probably one of my favorite movies of all time. This is like for me top five, just like greatest things ever put on film. So I'm very happy that I'm very happy that it's in the canon. I'm very happy that we got to talk about it. I'm happy that I got to talk to you about it. This has been a super fun conversation about one of my favorite movies. Thanks, man. Yeah, Thanks totally. I'm, ha- I'm happy to follow up on the like 15 year promise I gave you and I yeah. that I would watch. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to see if there if there are any other movies that uh 
that we spoke about or like recommended to each other back then. Um, yeah. But haven't gotten to. <laughs> uh, uh, if you're ready for it, I think I'm ready to jump into some recommendations. Yeah. Okay. So we'll usually we'll go, we'll go, we'll go one, one, two, two, three, three. So if you want to kick it off with your, cool, with your yeah. top rec or first rec. The, the first thing that immediately came to mind when I saw this movie was, was a, you might, you may have seen it, but like, it, I, I feel like it did not have a very big splash, but a couple of years ago, there was this movie called the death of Stalin that came out. Oh uh, yeah. In like 2017. And it's, it's so similar to this. I had seen it before and I watched it again after strange love as a, as a comparison. And it's mm-hmm. like a, super i mean it's about uh it's about uh you know the obviously the death of joseph stalin and like the kind of power vacuum that exists in the soviet union after that and all mm-hmm. these guys like fighting you know to get his position but it's also it's like it's an outright farcical comedy it's like it's like steve buscemi's uh nikita khrushchev and um and um like michael palin from uh, monty python's in it and jeffrey tambor yeah. and it's all these like really great character actors in this insanely funny whip type script about this and uh i just watched again this week and it's like first of all i like i'm I'm certain it had to take dr strange love as a huge uh as a huge inspiration but like if you like that type of thing it's a really great really quick watch and uh yeah and uh it's it's outrageously funny it's the guy it's armando iannucci who directed it who's the guy who did veep which i actually haven't really watched that much but it seems like that's sort of his area yeah i I saw it years ago and i remember really liking Mm -hmm. it but i feel like i have to watch give it like another sort of proper watch um but that's a great shout nice that's a good that's a good first shout okay for my first pick i always like to list like five and then Mm -hmm. just see how i'm feeling and uh pick pick three from there so i think the first one i'm going to go with is another kubrick movie um the only real connection connection to strange love is that uh sterling hayden who plays jack d ripper is also in said Kubrick movie. I don't know if you've ever seen the killing, but I haven't my recommendation. I've been meaning to. Yeah. It's super oh, nice, super short, super quick. It's like, it kind of plays like a Coen brothers movie, like sort of like Fargo, Fargo esque, but mm-hmm. it's like super fun. It, it's like it, it, it's obviously not the best thing that he's ever made. It was like super early in his career. Uh, but it is a, a very, very good watch. So, that's what I'm going with for my for my first rec. Oh, nice! Hopefully, it won't take me 15 years, but I'll, uh, yeah. I'll get to it for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll no, check I, that. <laughs> I've heard it's good, and yeah, the only early Kubrick movie I've seen that goes before this, like I said, is Spartacus. So, like, there's definitely there is a good handful of films over there that like I should really yeah. check out. I have to I have to check out Spartacus. I've never seen it. I think is there like a lot of drama around that movie, or like like behind the scenes with Kubrick and working uh, with studios yeah, and the- stuff. Well, the writer, the writer was this guy Dalton Trumbo, who I believe there, there's also a movie about him called Trumbo that that Brian Cranston was in, which I have not seen, but I think covers a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Um, if I and like, forgive me, anybody listening who knows more about this, because like I could just butcher this whole thing, but like, but like, I'm pretty sure he was blacklisted or almost blacklisted as a communist, and so there was a lot of controversy with bringing him on to write, even though he was like I think a fairly renowned Hollywood writer, and so mm-hmm. Kubrick kind of like put his ass on the line to get him to write to write Spartacus which 
as I said, like really deals with sort of like the, you know, in yeah. its own way, like uh, the blacklisting thing. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I think that was a lot of it. Although forgive me if I got anything wrong, I'm going to have to do a little more reading into it. Yeah. That's, I got a, that's a big blind spot for me. So maybe in the next 15 years I'll get to it. Yeah. And then, uh, and then should I throw out my second one? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So uh, I, I thought of another movie. I thought of really quickly after this was uh, was was Network, the uh, like the 1976 Sidney Lumet movie. Oh, um, nice. That actually might be in the yeah. canon. <laughs> was I, that, this the one? Like, that... I hit you the other day. It was like it was like I know you said don't recommend anything in the canon. Like I don't know if this <laughs> is or not, but <laughs> you know what? That's um, that's a totally fair because that movie like could definitely be in the canon, but could also see a world where where it's not yeah for sure <laughs> i mean I, I won't blow it wide open if there's gonna be an episode later but uh but but you know i i think it has to do obviously it's about a television network instead of uh you know group of politicians but it is a similar thing where it's like it's like this huge group of of like great stars popping up and it's just about these guys in power who have no idea what they're doing as they run as they run this network and kind of the crazy extents that it goes to when things just spiral out of control and pretty much shit hits the fan from the first scene in that movie. And there's like, and there's like so many like great towering performances in it. And it's, it's very, very dark, but also extremely funny at certain points. And it, it, uh, it was, that, that one was always one of my favorites. I saw it for the first time in like film school and it's, it's a good favorite of mine, but I thought of that a lot when I was watching this one. Nice. Okay. So I just, I double checked with our producers. It's not in the canon. So oh, cool. a double, double, double great shout. Yeah, man. I haven't seen that movie in years. I feel like the first time I watched it, it didn't really click for me, but I feel like I watched it in high school when I was going through like, here are all the movies that you need to watch. If you want to consider yourself a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a film snob or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, watching it at 16, it just didn't click for me, but I should probably try it again now. Yeah, you might get more of it now. It's it's. I mean, it's tonally super strange because you go in thinking it's just going to be this like drama about a network or something, yeah. and it, it goes absolutely off the rails in so many different ways. But uh, but you know, I think also like maybe some of the commentary on it would would ring a little more now. You know, as you get older and yeah. get a little more cynical. <laughs> Sweet, <laughs> nice. I like. Did you go with three movies? Uh no, the third one's not a movie. Okay. Sweet. I think I'm going to go with three movies. Um, I okay. unfortunately couldn't think of anything else. My second pick, I'm going to go with something that is, I was trying to think of like movies about like war and paranoia, and I couldn't think of too many, but one that I kept coming back to, and I didn't really want to recommend it, but because it just kept popping up into my head in, in terms of, uh, you know, a movie about paranoia um, surrounding war. I don't know if you've seen the movie Downfall about Hitler's final days and like yeah, the end of Nazi Germany, but that movie is like pretty wild mm-hmm. and it's like made by German filmmakers. So it's like an interesting look at like how Germans view the end of the war and the end of Hitler's regime. Um, and obviously like, you know, war and paranoia, like no, no one goes more hand in hand with that than, Adolf Hitler. So it felt like a, it felt like a good pick. I couldn't think of anything cold war related. So that's my, that's my war and paranoia recommendation downfall. 
No, for sure. And that, that's a great movie. And, and like, it, I feel like it hit the popular conscience a lot a couple of years ago when like that one scene of Hitler, like screaming at the people in his bunker was just kind of used for memes. And like, they put different subtitles underneath it where it's like, yeah, you know, like Hitler finds out that, uh, that Ned Stark dies or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, like, and like that, that shit was so funny. But if you actually go back to the movie, it's such a, like, I, I it's, it's one of my favorite, you know, like world war two era movies. It's so yeah. like, it's such an interesting look at it and like really, yeah, it's as much about like German guilt about the situation as it is about anything else. It's like, yeah, it's really like, it's a fascinating watch. And I forget the name of the guy who played Hitler, but he was, he's just so good. Yeah. I think he, that guy has like, unfortunately been typecast as like the German actor to play Nazis and or Hitler. Like, I think he may, like he's maybe played Hitler in multiple movies. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, (laughs) somebody has got to do it. That's like if any if there are any actors who are complaining about being typecast, like just talk to that guy. Like that is the worst yeah. typecasting of all time. Oh yeah, um, but uh, but you know, hopefully he got an award for it or something like yeah. that. At least <laughs> I don't know. He gets he, if I can represent the Jewish delegation, he gets a pass for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Very fair. Oh, sweet. What's your all right? What's the what's the non movie recommendation? So this one was also one that, like, I, I feel like the connection to this is not super obvious. And it kept popping in my head while I was watching this. And I couldn't figure out why, because it's like the themes aren't exactly the same. The subject matter isn't exactly the same. But mm-hmm. for some reason, I kept thinking about the Bioshock video game series, specifically the first oh, one. Oh, shit. I don't I, I'm not a big video game guy, um, but I've heard those are great. Oh yeah, if you're if you're ever making a foray into video games, like there's there's really like I can't really think of any game that's more cinematic than Bioshock, especially the mm-hmm. first one. And like what it deals with is like, you know, it's sort of this like post-apocalyptic feeling sort of thing and the first one takes place in this like giant underground city that basically looks like, you know, like 1930s era New York. Um but it's but it's all sorry, I, I think I said underground, but I meant to say underwater. Um it's uh so it like it's this whole thing underneath the ocean. It's this giant city, but it's it's at this point been completely like bombed out, and like most of the people there have like died or left, and then like you're kind of left exploring it, trying to figure out what it is with all these monsters and uh and like larger than life characters and things like that. And at first, I was trying to think about this paired with Doctor Strangelove because it like doesn't really have to do with like atomic bombs or uh, or political figures or anything like that, but mm-hmm. it does. I, I realized like two things. One is that it like, it, it definitely has the same feeling of like the pride of a bunch of dumb men in a movie thinking they can make something larger than life only to have it unmake them, you know, is mm-hmm. sort of a big thing that happens in this Dr. Strangelove as a character would also fit very well in this game. There's a lot of these like mad scientist types who like are, are like yeah. super eccentric and like hold the keys to civilization, but are actually just like, you know, are just like nutty, you know, like nutty as hell. And uh, also, like, like the most literal sense was, like, this giant underwater city felt a lot like the Mineshaft community yeah. concept in, uh, in the movie. <laughs> and so it's like, Bioshock is like, what if they did the Mineshaft thing, but they put it underwater and it all just completely went to shit. Yeah. So if you ever, they, they, it's from 2007, but they reissue it a ton. Yeah. So if you, have, you know, if you ever find yourself with a current generation console, you can probably play it pretty easily. And it's really, it's like, it's not super long, but it's like, it really it plays out like a movie almost more than any other game I've played. It's like super cinematic and really well done. And uh, also has some of the, you know, old timey songs like, uh, 
like uh, we'll meet. Again. I, I don't know if we, we'll meet again is literally in it, but like a lot of yeah, stuff like something that, like that. Yeah. It, so it really it kind of fits in it a little bit. Nice. Uh, I've heard great things about the game. Do you? What do you game on? Are you a PlayStation guy? Xbox? Yeah. PC? I uh, I, I grew up. I had the I had the N sixty four as a kid, so I'll always have some love for Nintendo. But mostly yeah. these days, like I, I have a PS five now, and like I've just been playing PlayStation mostly. I think Bioshock actually was originally an Xbox game, but they've since put it on everything. Okay, cool. I might check it out. I do have a PlayStation Five, not uh, oh nice PlayStation. Yeah, um, you, you could probably buy the whole series for like twenty, thirty bucks, and like it's totally worth your time. Like people, people have been more critical about the second and third games. Yeah, and I don't think they're as effective as the first one, but they're all in their own way pretty effective. And it's like it's really it's a good experience that you probably wouldn't have yeah. to pay a lot for. I might check it out. I yeah. I'm thinking about it and I, I can't I can't remember specifically, but there may have been a previous episode where someone recommended Bioshock. Just because I I've had like other people on who are who are into uh gaming a bit more than I am. Uh but I can't remember specifically mm-hmm. if anyone recommended Bioshock. But either way, a good a good shout. And I think I should I think I should probably play it at some point. I need to up my my video gaming. Um, that's a conversation for another day. All right. So <laughs> I said before I was going to go with three movies, but I don't totally love all of my other movie options. So I think I might do a last minute audible and it's a bit of a stretch in terms of how it's connected, but I feel like it is one of the better sort of text of like cold war era just like artwork. And I think in some ways it is sort of dealing with the same like issues of powerful men in these closed off rooms who, you know, we think should be doing their job a certain kind of way, or, you know, we should hold them to a a different kind of standard than like we would hold ourselves to, but they're really just a bunch of bozos at the end of the day. So I'm going to go with, for my final recommendation, I'm going to go with the uh, Animals album by Pink Floyd. Uh, Oh, nice. Yeah, kind of random, but uh, I wanted to throw in some music. I feel like it's been a while since I've recommended an album, so I'm going to go with that one. No, it certainly works for this. You know, I uh, there's a clear parallel there, and like, yeah, I it took me a while to get into Pink Floyd, even even during like my full on classic rock phase. You know, I, yeah. I I didn't quite dive into Pink Floyd, but Animals is actually probably my favorite Pink Floyd album. You know, and I think yeah, a lot of that is the reason for it. Like the imagery is really clear and really well thought out. Um, yeah, but it's also like just really compositionally so impressive. I went on a weird Pink Floyd kick like a couple weeks ago. I don't mm-hmm. know what triggered it. I think I heard brain damage and I was like, oh yeah, that band is cool. I should listen yeah. to their music again. And I listened to animals and I was like, yeah, pigs is still like, it totally kicks ass. Uh, yeah. You know, like people should just make 11 minute songs again. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, you see it pop up a little bit, but like, yeah, no, I, I, it's, I, I like, I have that debate with, 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 uh, Jake, or, you know our mutual friend, about it. Yeah. Lot, but like, uh, Jake is really about like if you can't say it in two minutes and fifty seconds, don't bother. Where I'm like, nah, make it like fifteen minutes. <laughs> yeah, give give me give me Frank Ocean's pyramids all the time. There give you me, go. There you give go. me yeah. Purple Rain. <laughs> give me give me pigs. Give me all of that stuff. 
love a yeah, I love a good ten minute jam. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, sweet. All right, let's um, let's do one last spin through our recommendations, and uh, and then we'll we'll wrap this some bitch up. So, yeah, you you can go first and just rattle off all three. Oh, cool. Yeah. So my my recommendations are the uh, the death of Stalin, um, the movie Network, and uh, the Bioshock game series, specifically the first one. Sweet. I've got Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. I've got a director whose name escapes me at the moment, Downfall, and I've got Pink Floyd's album Animals. Mr. David Cohan, thank you again for uh, for joining me. This has been one of my favorite episodes. Uh, this was this was a ton of fun. Um, like I said before, one of my favorite movies, and I'm very happy that I got to talk about it specifically with you. I feel like this is just a continuation of what we used to do in high school, uh, shooting the shit about movies that we, that we dig and recommending movies to, to each other. I am kind of surprised that you didn't find a way to tie in one of the fast and furious movies, but <laughs> you know, I, I tried, I really, any way I could throw that in, I'd, I'd be happy to, but you know, like, uh, I think this time it was a little tough. <laughs> for for the the next time we we have you on, you'll uh you'll bring in a uh, some sort of connection to to one of the fast yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure at least at least four of those ten films are in the canon. So you know, just whichever one you want to bring me on for. <laughs> no, but uh, no, dude, this was awesome. I mean, it was great to catch up and. Uh, and, uh, you know, I love that all these years later, we can still have these conversations and, yeah, uh, man. it's nice to not do it on Twitter for a change, you know, no care. Yeah. Limits and things like it's, that. Yeah. It's nice to, to actually chat with, with each other. Do you, do you have anything to, to plug any upcoming projects or recent projects that you worked on that people should check out or, you know, where can people find you online? All, all that good stuff. Oh yeah. I don't have like a website or any kind of like. I probably should at this point, you know, but like, I like, you know, since the work isn't directly coming from my pen, you know, like I've never yeah. really thrown it together, but like, you know, I mean, uh, there's this little movie called Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse that came out a couple months ago. Maybe you've heard of it, but like, uh, but you know, uh, definitely that was the most recent thing. I actually, I worked on marketing for that. So like a lot of the billboards, stuff like that, that was all, that was all our team. But, uh, but the movie itself is, is, is totally worth the hype and, uh, and go check it out. And, um, I'm working on another movie at, at this moment called the Marvels, you know, from a little known studio. Um, <laughs> you know, I think everybody listening has already decided if they're going to go see a Marvel movie or not. So I'm not really going to say you should go see it if you haven't thought about it, but uh, you know, it's that, that is something I'm working on. And if you feel like going to see, you know, like the 50th superhero film, that is uh, that I, I did, I did help out a little bit on that one. And there is a really talented team of people that I work with on it. So however you feel about MCU movies, the guys doing the visual effects are super nice and super cool. And uh, that's, that's the next thing that I did. That's, that's going to come out. Sweet. Yeah. Check it out because that's a good reminder that there are a lot of people who work on these movies who do really good work. And even if you, you know, have Marvel fatigue uh, in general or whatever, there are still, you know, real people who, who work on these and do important artwork and, you know, sort of, not sort of, they, they work really hard at what they do and we should appreciate the, uh, the art that they make for us 
if you can sort of remove that appreciation for for what they do from whatever your thoughts are about the larger MCU or you know Hollywood industry as as a whole. So thanks yeah, for that reminder. Totally. Yeah. At least be nice to us on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. That v- very least we can we'll we'll all agree to to do that. We'll be a little bit nicer on Twitter. We'll only yell at at, at the studio execs, not the not the people just doing their freaking jobs and yeah and absolutely cool yell art. at them because they need to pay their writers and their actors <laughs> yeah. that is i think those are wise words to end with um yell at the studio execs uh so that they can pay the writers and actors so that everyone who works uh in various different uh art forms within the the industry can can do the uh the work that that they should be doing sir totally. thank thank you again yeah, man. Happy to do it. This is a ton of fun. And, and you know, anytime you want me, I'm here.